0: Say hello, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane, uh, here with Regan DeLoggins. Uh, before we get into it, let me do as I always try to do, uh, remind folks that um, even if this isn't a specific fundraising show, fund drive show, we're always fund- fundraising. We're always trying to get support for the the host stations of this program. And, of course, I'm talking about WBAI and WPFW, um, New York and Washington. Um so I, I ask you, I ask you to go to the pledge lines to make a donation to support these radio stations and do it in the name of the show. If you're in New York, I ask you to go. Uh, we can go to the website You can go to give to wbaiorg Follow the prompts to make a donation. You can become a WBAI buddy and uh, list this show as the as the show that you that you want to uh, support. Um all you know, all donations go to the station. They don't go, they don't come to us. They go they go to the station. Uh we are just one of the one of the programs that we hope that you tune into um, uh, WBI and WPFW to listen to. Uh you can also go to the pledge line, it's two one two two zero nine two nine five zero. That's two one two two zero nine two nine five zero That's the number of call to make a donation. Make it a donation of any size. You can you can do it timed, you can uh you can uh, up a donation that you've made in the past. If you are already a buddy, you can up uh, up the amount that you're doing per month. Um, whatever whatever suits you. If you look, if you're if you're not in a position to support the radio station right now, we understand. Everybody's struggling a little bit, uh, but well, not everybody. Some people are and. So if you have the the means to support the station, by all means, we wish that you do that. If you're listening in Washington on WPFW-FM, then I ask that you go to 202-588-9739. Uh, make a pledge, again, of any size. Uh, you can go to their website, which is WPFWFM.org org, and uh, make a donation. And please do make it in the name of this radio program on your radio station. Um, all right. Uh, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, and I didn't do it last week, and and I apologize. I didn't acknowledge the passing uh, of Bob F- Bob Fass. Uh, I can honestly say the first time that I was ever on WBAI it was because of Bob Fass. I used to stay up late nights. Uh, I was working for a native company up in Plattsburgh, New York, and uh, and I could. I used to tune in. I used to tune in via the internet, and uh, and I'd call in. I I I'd give Bob a call. We, we, he used to really love to talk about. Uh, the high steel workers, the, the Mohawks, as, as they call them, Mohawks and high steel, it wasn't just mohawks, but uh, but he used to love when I'd call in and we uh, w- and we'd tell some stories about some of those experiences uh, that so many of um, uh, my people had working in New York City and that kind of thing. So I do want to acknowledge um, the tremendous loss uh, uh, that that we're all feeling and, uh, and and acknowledge the good work and and the transformative work. That guys like uh, Bob fast did. I likened the programs that I uh, in, began as free-form radio as well no script um, I didn't necessarily always stay on topic if I was bringing up a, a specific topic um, and I attribute some of that to the freewheeling style of, of Bob fast so um, again my condolences to everyone who is uh, missing uh, Bob Fass. Uh, all right. Uh, do we uh, do, Regan? Do we have you yet? No Regan yet. No Regan yet. Okay. You know, look. As many of you know, we are doing the show remote, remotely. Uh, so we have to ask. All right. So, I got a couple things I want to talk about. But well, one thing primarily, and and if you've seen the promo for the show. Um, yesterday was designated missing and murdered indigenous women uh, awareness day and it's missing women uh, lgbtq 2s um, and yesterday was the day designated to raise that awareness but this year there has been uh, a national effort and a national campaign to call this week the national week of action and there are events happening all over the u.s and canada and, and frankly, I'm, I'm sure, uh, although I can't name name one specifically, I'm sure they're happening in other parts of the world. The attention that is being drawn to missing and murdered Indigenous women is uh, ha- has been gaining momentum. Look, it, um, the uh, May 5th has been designated the awareness day since uh, uh, 2017, I believe. But now we are finally getting more awareness. And look, I'm gonna I'm gonna give some credit where credit is due. I attribute some of that attention to um, uh, to Deb Hallin, being the interior secretary, um, the current president not not being afraid to address it. Um, but most of the credit goes to all of the Native people, Native women in particular, who have been on the ground raising this issue. And, and I'm not going to take anything away from the men who have uh, been there. But look, this isn't just a women's issue. The drive to resolve and address this issue has been significantly... By, uh, by indigenous women and, and our allies, all of our allies So um, yeah, One of the things that I guess I could just basically Start with are some of the, just the raw Ugly statistics That, um, that we have become Increasingly aware of 84% of indigenous women Will experience violence In their lifetime, 84% I mean that's, that's an incredible number uh, One in three Indigenous women will be raped In their lifetime not just sexually assaulted. I'm I'm saying raped. One in three. That is that's an unheard of number. And and these numbers kind of translate. They cross that imaginary line. Uh, some call the Canadian border because this is happening on either side. In fact, I got to give the uh, uh, the Indigenous women on the Canadian side props for for being some of the the first ones driving this issue and raising uh, raising awareness. Um, murder is the third largest cause of death for indigenous women i mean that's i mean that's an insane number i mean to to, to suggest that it's the third largest uh, third leading cause of death now here's a number that frankly has changed a little bit as uh, as there's been more reporting 88% of the uh, of the time the perpetrators are non-native I remember not long ago, in fact, I've used the statistic fairly recently when it it was alleged that it was 70% were non-native, and that seemed like a low number to me, and I'm I'm not trying to let any uh, native men off the hook who have also uh, committed violence against women, but but the recent statistics now indicate or now show that 88% of the the perpetrators are non-native. I mean, look. That still means that 12% of the perpetrators are native. So I'm. I still think that we, as native people, have to hold our men accountable uh, for, for, you know, for what they're doing. And I'm not going to call it an indiscretion. Look, if you commit a violent act against a woman, that's not an indiscretion. That's a crime. That's a violent crime. So let me just just say that. But with these numbers, it is still important to realize that these that. You know that this issue, violence against women, is under, is underreported, significantly underreported. It's, but it's not only underreported; it's underinvestigated, it's underidentified. And by underidentified, what I mean is, many times the when somebody does call uh, some policing agency, they they either write it off. I mean, look, if somebody's missing, they're going to say, "Well, that's because um, they probably just ran away." And look, it's it's possible, but. But if you've got families who are saying, no, I'm sure it's not a runaway, and 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 the cops still refuse to, to investigate, that is that is very much a, a problem. And of course, if these crimes are underreported, reported under-investigated, under-identified, of course they are under-convicted. Uh, so when when you consider that 88% of the perpetrators are, are white, um, or non-native, let me say that, non-native, um, it we we can almost consider the laws that certainly should apply to violence against native women as if they don't exist because if, if you're not going to convict if you're not going to prosecute and convict people of these crimes then are they really crimes uh, you know of course i'm not debating whether it's a crime or not i'm just saying in the in the judicial system of us and canada are they being treated as crimes or are they being treated as indiscretions and and this to me is very very problematic um, look, uh, we also have uh, a couple of other issues that contribute to the inaccuracies. Many times it, uh, a um, a report that is filed the the race gets listed as unknown. So native people are not identified specifically. So it makes it a little bit more difficult for us to determine what numbers of uh, how much of this domestic violence or you know, or unreported or missing people can be directly attributed to, to being native because the, the, the race or the, uh, the, the identifying um, racial identifiers are, are not filled in. There's also a big problem with what is listed as the cause of death. Oftentimes these violent crimes are being listed as accidental or automatically assume that if somebody died that it was a suicide. And, and, and I'm not suggesting that suicides don't happen. But to assume that any homicide is a suicide is, well, obviously it creates a dangerous environment. Because if there's somebody is responsible for that death, then they are never held to account. So this is a major problem. And then on top of that, we have a lot of tugging and pulling over jurisdictional issues look native people in many of our pla- many places we are always fighting against outside jurisdiction on our territories but what happens is as much as we we may or may not be successful in pushing off uh, outside jurisdiction on our territories getting a police department to to investigate a crime not necessarily by our own people again 88% of the time it's a non-native person but getting getting somebody a police department or the FBI, you know, or, or anybody to to investigate a crime committed against our women is very very difficult, and the jurisdiction issue becomes becomes a factor. One of the biggest problems is even in territories where we have tribal police, and I'm not a big fan of tribal police, so l- let me say that right off the bat. Um, I still think it's an imposed system on our people. But even in territories where there are um, tribal courts. And, and a judicial system and, a, and a, some sort of police or peacekeeping um, uh, agency, those, uh, those services are not recognized by the outside. In, in the vast majority of places, and, and I used to say in none of the places, in, in all the places, I should say, but in the vast majority of Native territories, a police agency, a Native police agency, cannot convict or prosecute a white person. Yeah, I mean it is forbidden by federal law for a tribal poli- uh, t- a police department, even with a, 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 a full credit, a full credited court system, to prosecute a white man or, or a non-native person. And so uh, that's just one more reason that somebody can get away w- can get away with a crime. Now, under the terms a few years ago uh, of the, the Violence Against Women Act, VAWA, um, they began a pilot program, but only certain selected police departments, tribal police departments, that, as far as the the um, uh, the united states and 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 the uh, and and the specific state, would recognize, perhaps even have deputized their the tribal police officers as as county sheriffs or or state police. Um, those were the only circumstances where a tribal police department could uh, could prosecute. So essentially, it wasn't really it wasn't really us being able to hold somebody account for convi- uh, for committing a crime against our people. And and if we don't have a police department, we, it becomes even more complicated for any of us who want to um, initiate some effort to to protect our women from these crimes. And and of course, we can find ourselves. Um, prosecuted for uh, in any way, shape or form uh, attributing justice to a, you know, to a crime like this. So it becomes very, very complicated in, in this. Um, as I mentioned, the, the fifth has been designated as a uh, Oh, great, great. Good. I was just going to keep talking forever. <laughs> the fifth has been designated as um, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, uh, lgbtq 2s Awareness Day. But this year, and I think this is the first year that they've really tried to protract this into a week-long um, series of actions that will be taking place, and of course, many of them will uh, will be taking place on this this coming weekend. Uh, Regan, I've been just going off rattling a bunch of statistics, and I don't know what you heard and what you didn't, but but feel free to weigh in, you know, coming out of the gate here.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, can first of all, can y'all hear me? Okay.
0: You sound great.
1: Good. <laughs> I finally I finally got a new AirPod so that y'all can hear me all right on your side. Um, so uh, so sorry for being late, but I'm glad that this is the discussion we're having because as John was saying, you know, this is, um, well, yesterday, May 5th is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, Trans, and Two-Spirit Awareness Day. Um, and I assume from what you've, from what you just said, but also just to remind folks, you know, we are the most targeted people in our communities for sexual violence, murder, and kidnapping. So it's been a what was, you know, a day to bring awareness is also a day to mourn and a day to celebrate and a day to grieve. And unfortunately, because this is such a violent epidemic because of ongoing colonialism, it has expanded beyond just the day. You know, we, we take the week, um, we take the years, we take, we take everything we can to continue to educate and remind folks. So even though there is this one, you know, this one day we spend every moment of our lives educating people about the violence that our communities are inflicted. Um, and so yes, there, there are a number of different actions happening. I was part of one just uh, just a couple days ago in talks and in solidarity with those at Line 3 talking about resource extraction and its connection to missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, trans, and two-spirit folks. Uh, and actually, if you are in New York City, uh, we are having an action on Saturday, a teach-in, Um, at Brooklyn Borough Hall, led by the collective that I'm in, the Indigenous Kinship Collective, specifically to invite folks into the space. And we're collaborating with a number of other collectives as well to talk about the legacy that is MMIWG2ST and how it's interconnected to things happening in the global South, how it's interconnected to resource extraction, how it's interconnected to statistic gathering, as well as um, the inherent transphobia that is experienced in statistic gathering as well as anti-blackness that is experienced in statistic gathering when talking about MMIWG2ST. So that's this Saturday at Borough Hall. I'll remind y'all again at the end of the show. Um, but as John was saying, this has become bigger than just one day to raise awareness. You know, we, we it's such an important topic within our communities that this has become a, a yearly discussion. You know, we talk about this constantly.
0: Well, uh, and if you would, you mentioned the connection between the extractive industries, um, and and we've talked about it before. But why don't you explain that a little bit? Because yeah, you know, course. I think it would be easy for people not to not understand things like the the trail of terror, you know, and and tears, you know, that that exist on the Canadian side, and some of what uh, what what people have experienced as a direct. Um, uh, you know directly because of because of the extractive industry
1: of course well resource extraction as everyone knows comes in a a number of different or maybe people don't know comes in a number of different ways whether it's through tar sands whether it's through fracked gas or whether it's our bodies as indigenous people or whether it's the continued uh, destruction and theft of our lands Mining and, L- mining, and mining and lumber.
0: Mining and lumber. Right. You know, we always yeah. forget
1: about that, but mining and lumber is a huge part of that as well. What happens is usually they're taking. They happen in indigenous communities, um, in areas that have been designated uninhabited, which already is an incorrect way to look at the land. And then they start to build. Well, let's let's use a pipeline for example. You start to build along this pipeline, and because a lot of these pipelines are not put through white communities, but put through black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. They're going through our spaces, our neighborhoods, whether it's North Brooklyn, where they're putting in the North Brooklyn pipeline right now, or whether it's Line 3 that's going through Anishinaabe and Dakota treaty territory, they go through our communities. And they have to bring in usually white cisgender men into our communities to build these pipelines. And because it's a long project and it takes years to build pipelines, they set up what's called man camps. And man camps are small towns along these pipeline routes Filled with the workers, and these workers are often away from their communities, away from their, um, away from their homes, and away from, and honestly, away from the law. Because a lot of these pipelines are also paying for the police to protect the pipeline and protect the workers. So we're talking also about almost a sense of lawlessness within these man camps, where you have. As I said, men away from their homes, away from their communities, who often seek to infiltrate our communities for sex. So often that is participating in sex trade, uh, non-consensual sex work, as well as kidnapping and murdering indigenous women, girls, trans and two-spirit people. And of course, the ice cream truck is going by right now. So I apologize for those who hear that. I thought you playing with your
0: music box.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well here it's, uh, it's gonna be here for a while let me move hold on sorry y'all um, well let but, me let me and,
0: let me uh, interject a little bit well you know while be you're because one of the things i want to bring up and, and reggie if you're listening do you remember a program and it used to be a sitcom that was on called here comes the bride oh yeah <laughs> okay, so here's oh, yeah. the premise of the show. It's loggers. It's a man camp, and they essentially ship in women, uh, you know, to accommodate these men. I mean, that's literally, you know, this was like in the era of Beverly Hillbillies uh-huh. and Pendleton Junction. And I, I, I bring up Reggie because. Regan, you're simply not as old as we are. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, I'm not. (laughs) But there was literally a show on TV. Now, it it didn't specific or specify, you know, uh, the impact that this had on Native women. But the idea that it was so acknowledged, this idea of 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 these sex-starved men (laughs) in these remote areas, um, it there is you know there's there is a truth to that they made light of it in this in this program and of course it all seems so romantic and that kind of stuff well it ain't so romantic in uh, in reality in reality you have not just these these man camps that have a a a particularly strong relationship with with uh, with law enforcement sometimes they bring their own their their security forces essentially yes. Uh, represent, the, you know, a a form of law enforcement when when they're really there just to service these these man camps and, you know, and and to try to keep the peace amongst the men, not not with the communities. I mean, it's clear for those um, territories where we oppose this any kind of these uh, extractive industries, it is clear where these police and where these security forces stand. They they aren't just keeping the peace; they are protecting the interest, the financial interest these of these, uh, of, these uh, of these man camps so i just want to throw and, that in especially while you had such charming music in the background
1: <laughs> of course well I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's actually um i mean so before i got on this call i was on i was speaking to my lawyer because as i was uh as i've told people on the show before and will reiterate um you know i'm, I'm facing charges for being uh, on the front lines at line three specifically to stop the pipeline going through and was arrested and had to actually deal with these private security um, people that are brought in to protect the pipeline and protect the man camps and protect the men that are doing this destructive work uh, and as well as the police departments that are in the pockets of enbridge which is the uh, canadian corporation that's building line three through anishinaabe and dakota territories and it's not it's not a secret that the police are paid by uh, by the pipeline. like it's, it's not a secret, it's a matter of public record. You can see how much they're paid in an hour. Um, they're paid overtime, in fact, for providing protection to these workers, um, which if you if, if folks are interested, uh, I highly recommend looking into where Enbridge get it, gets its money and how Enbridge pays the police and pr- pays private security. Because you can see that the intention is to protect the property and the workers, not the land or the people. So I think that this is an important conversation in terms of man camps, because man camps don't just exist in this, they exist in this very particular stasis, because the police and private security provide them with that. And it it adds to another layer of, I think, incredible disgust is the fact that we cannot try people who non-Indigenous people that do crime on our land. So if people participate in, you know, the kidnapping and the murder of indigenous women, girls and trans folks, it's often rare that the tribe can prosecute or, um, hold these men accountable without working with the FBI and the FBI, as we've spoken about on the show has a, a history of not working with indigenous people. Um, in fact, often working against Indigenous people. So there's a and we, you know there's a, an incredible la- lack of trust with law enforcement for good reason. You know when we talk about the abolition of police, that includes the FBI and the CIA and tribal police. So it's a l- larger conversation as well as like how do we go about protecting those who are targeted by resource extraction, which are Indigenous women, trans girls, and uh, Two Spirit folks. Like how do we protect them with also not participating in um, in policing and in the carceral system. So that's even, that's also a part of this conversation about MMIW G2ST. And often, you know, there's a lack of trust between community and the carceral system and police forces and, and community within itself. So there's 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 these larger issues and larger impacts that MMIW G2ST has. But one of the ones that I, that I try to hammer home and discuss is how these man camps, which Mind you, I I want folks to understand It's not like 10 or 15 workers It's hundreds of workers In these tiny, you know, cities almost Built along the pipeline route Who participate in the kidnapping and murder Of indigenous people as a resource as well It's We already saw it actually uh, Maybe like a month before I was at Line 3 in Minnesota A sex ring was broken up in uh, in an area close to where I was, and Enbridge pipeline workers were a part of it, and the people who were being trafficked were Indigenous people. So we're already seeing this. This isn't just something that you know we talk about in statistics. It it, it was happening the month that I was um, that I ended up being there on the front lines. Is that we can already see the real impacts that these man camps have on our communities, which is always negative. You have. Men away from home, away from community, and away from accountability, who are protected by law enforcement and private security firms, who often are working in collaboration with them to, to participate in in, in, a, in in sexual assault, rape, and murder. But they're and, and not. You know, able...
0: And the, the sickening part is, many of these men have families back home. Yes. You know, so when you talk about not being held accountable, it, it's it's more than not being held accountable. There's there's a sense of this of this wilderness mentality that takes over these guys who are out in in relative wilderness compared to where they're from, and. They they get this this you know sense of you know of lawless, lawlessness that uh, that you know that the the environment including the people that are there are are only f- for them to exploit and so it's it, it is I, I think it's it's really important that people understand that now I I mentioned as you just did some of the jurisdictional problems and while there are jurisdictional problems it is also used as a football where many of these whether it's You know whether it's uh, local police uh, state police or the FBI they they can play a little hot potato with this stuff and so they'll they'll use the some of the obscurity uh, associated with uh, with jurisdiction to, to to essentially do nothing so while there there are problems with with the systems and we know there's problems with the systems. There's also um, an exploitation that those who run the systems utilize. Now the other thing I've got, and I've got to mention this, is that we've seen evidence many times where the police were involved in some of these, uh, some of this activity, where the police officers themselves uh, were were participated in some of this this violence against against Native women, and 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 I, you know, and we we've seen this in many places, both on the U.S. and on the Canadian side, and you know, and it gets, again, it gets covered up by the police departments, or they're you know cops that might may or may not get reprimanded, but they sure as hell don't go to prison. So this is this is a problem that runs so deep and 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 touches in you know, almost everybody who's in a who's in in a region. And I,
1: I want folks to also understand, like when we talk about the Highway of Tears, which you brought up briefly, but I'll just kind of elaborate on the Highway of Tears is on the Canada side of the so-called border, and it's seven hundred and twenty-five uh, kilometers, so like four hundred and fifty miles. Um, and it's called Highway 16. And it goes uh, between Prince George and Brit- and to the end of British Columbia. Uh, so you've got this huge stretch of highway. And on it, since the 1970s, is what they often, you know, people reference, is since the 1970s, there's been thousands of uh, cases in which indigenous cisgendered women have gone missing or have been murdered. But what's really important for folks to understand, and I really advocate that people look this up, is that if you look at the map of the Highway of Tears, Um, there are dozens of pipeline sites along this highway and it is interconnected that pipeline expansion is synonymous to numbers growing in terms of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, trans and two-spirit people. Like there's an actual, like the (laughs) map in which you can see where our communities are targeted, not just for resource extraction of, of our lands, but also resource extraction of our bodies. So it, there, it's, it's, I find it difficult to talk about this without bringing up that map because it's so evident that resource extraction is synonymous to rising numbers of murder and rape. And that's just on the Canada side. If you also look at this particular map, which by the way is available on Wikipedia, so it's pretty accessible, is that it also connects to the pipelines going into Line 3, Line 5, and um, Bayou Bridge, as well as DAPL. So it's an interconnectedness between this highway that's in so-called Canada and how it connects to the pipeline south of the border. And then the numbers of people going missing along our side of that so-called border is also, are also rising. So this is all based in resource extraction. Nonetheless, though, though that's an important aspect to talk about, something that was brought up yesterday that I really resonated with is that there's a lack of statistics and a lack of research done about missing and murdered indigenous uh, people in cities along those routes as well. Great point. Um, Because we often talk about missing and murdered indigenous women specifically from a cisgendered perspective, which is problematic, but also from a reservation um, based perspective, which is true. Our reservations are targeted, but people also go missing and murdered in large cities. Albuquerque, New Mexico actually has the largest amount of open cases for missing and murdered indigenous women. So We can't divorce the fact that we are impacted both along the pipeline routes as well as the cities in which most of these cargo to create the pipeline routes come through. And we were discussing this specifically at the action um, just a couple days ago for the uh, No North Brooklyn pipeline, because we are now interested, unfortunately, because of this horrible violence, as to the numbers of missing and murdered people along the pipeline route of North Brooklyn as well and how that is interconnected. So we can't divorce the fact that MMIWG2ST has also infiltrated our cities as well. This is not just a reservation issue. This is a anywhere indigenous people inhabit issue.
0: and and it always has been and i think it's important and you know i don't talk a lot about aim but one of the part of the origin story of the american indian movement had to do with some of the violence that native women in particular but native people were experiencing in part of one of the u.s programs that was you pushing native people into cities minneapolis st paul the twin cities of, of minnesota um, was was really ground zero for Ames' uh, beginning, and part of it was to address some of the violence that uh, that Native people were experiencing, and, and that goes back to the '70s. So, this is not a new a new issue. Now, one of the other questions that comes up is is you know, is why right? And we, and we gave you some examples uh, about some of the 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 physical circumstances, but there's also an attitudinal issue. There's a and 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 it it gets fed by things like. Um, the way history is told, what Hollywood has done—the sexualization of, of Native women in particular, um, what Disney has done—and you know, we can do a whole whole show just on how they portrayed Pocahontas um, as this demure, you know, you know, uh, uh, sexualized woman uh, and this massive, you know, virile white man. Uh, and you know, documenting a relationship that never really existed. But these are the kinds of things that feed into this. Oh, I'm going to have my, you know, my Indian princess uh, um, mentality that that so many you know white men develop. But we see this fed in in nursery rhymes. I mean, literally the 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 little you know one little two little three little Indian stuff that you know that children have been exposed to, you know, before. I mean, almost pre-K. Um, children's stories that, that you know that, that get told. So all of the stuff feeds into not only the objectification of native people, and and I didn't even mention mascots, but the objectification of native people. But more specifically, it it runs down to the objectification of oversexualized um, uh, native women, as it is as as they are portrayed in American society.
1: Well, through settler through settler eyes indigenous communities and land are always seen as consumable we are either fetishized to the point of violence or we're seen as a resource to extract and i i make that correlation because i think it's important for folks to understand that sexual assault is resource extraction they are there is something that is wanted and it's taken by by violence and so we can't we can't divorce that from the narrative of growing resource extractive industries
0: what was the when first thing t- Columbus sent back to Spain?
1: Exactly. That's what, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. When that's why it's so disrespectful when people push back on, especially here in New York. You know, there's this huge Italian American presence in New York that really, um, really holds Columbus Day dear, near and dear. And Cuomo and De Blasio have said over and over and over again, and other and other politicians have said over and over again that they will not replace. Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day because there's such a strong Italian-American presence and there's such a heritage to celebrate. And we've discussed this on the show before, but it's important because of the DOE's decision, which we'll discuss in just a moment, that the celebration of Columbus Day is a celebration of the beginning of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls and trans and two-spirit folks. That was part of the intention of colonizing our lands was also... Sending indigenous women
0: to and comfort
1: and girls, and girls. And girls. Like, I mean, we forget like, the narrative of Pokemon nine and ten is year olds. I mean, Columbus yeah, talked
0: about nine and ten year olds, how much they were getting paid um, for sending these children to uh, you know to Spain. I mean, ten yeah, year old girls. it's now, all a it's, part it's, of this. Yeah, exactly. So it's a rape, it's a rape I, culture I, that was imported, and it was uh, and it was native women that were exported. Almost, uh, you know almost from the well from day one
1: but that's part of settler colonialism is that right. i mean if, when the colonies were created from different aspects mind you we you know you have the british colonies the french the spanish and the dutch each one of those colonies participated in um bringing women to the colonies as comfort women which is what they were referred to and also uh, and putting them in contract by the way so that they were forced to be in uh, in these relationships um, but then also uh, bringing in enslaved women from Africa to do the same thing, and then enslaving indigenous people as well to do the same thing, this is all part of it. But we see it as well as part of the imperial legacy when imperialism, when the United States expanded quote unquote into the Philippines and into Guam and into other you know, into other parts of the Pacific Islands. The first resource that was brought back, imported back to the, to the so-called United States were women from these colonies. so this is part of yeah part of hawaii as well like this settler colonialism one of the first resources before land even is sexual enslavement so it's so when when people are like oh this is a new problem from the 70s missing and murdered indigenous women No, no 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 this has happened since white people came to our lands this is this is part of settler colonialism you can't divorce sexual resource extraction from settler colonialism. We see the same thing happening in Palestine as well and people rarely discuss it. But mm-hmm. there is a real need to, discuss, to to unpack the fact that settler colonialism is based in sexual violence and it's based in the, the rape of body and land. It's, it's, it's a necessity for it to continue to grow.
0: I yeah and you know and, and I absolutely agree with you and you know, one of the things that that I I want to do you know I, time can go so fast even even in this hour I want to <laughs> acknowledge our our last our guest last week Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz you know just having her on the program and I know our audio wasn't the greatest your connection wasn't great and hers wasn't wasn't great but I learned you know some significant issues from you know items from her just last week and and part of the whole thing. It was this, you know, how do, how did immigrants become settler co- uh, colonists? Or how did, they, how do they get elevated from the loathed um, immigrant status to settler colonialism? And that's what we've seen with, you know, with the Irish and with the Italians and even with, with Jewish people, and so they become the the settler colonial class, even as even though they began. And part of it, there is a transformation that happens. One of the things that also that Roxanne brought up that I didn't know was that the Knights of Columbus was an organization start by the started by the Irish to promote mm-hmm. Catholicism and and to well not even promote Catholicism but to validate and and improve the image of Catholicism by connecting Catholics to to Columbus and the discovery of America and all of that those myths. I always thought that Knights of Columbus was was an Italian organization. It it became dominated by uh, many Italian immigrants um, but that was also an interesting um, piece of information that I wasn't aware of uh, I don't know if you well, have any other thoughts on on what some of Roxanne brought to us last week
1: yeah of course I think it's just I think something that I find interesting is how both Italian Americans and Irish Americans adopt um, adopt settler colonial histories in order to find power when at first you know they 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 weren't white they weren't seen as white when um when immigrating over to the so-called country and then that narrative changed but also being provided a, an outlet to to shift was also a huge part of that so offering irish americans the opportunity to be slave catchers to um to to become police was one was one way to introduce them into white supremacy which is a bit different than the Italian American narrative, which became more about mercantile class, which became about participating in capitalism as a way to, to infiltrate and um, to be uplifted into the white supremacist standing. So I'd love that Roxanne brought that up because I, it, it's a choice. It was a, It was a provided choice to participate in the continued abuse of indigenous communities and black communities in order to find power within a system that originally there was a lack of power for them. So I love that right. Roxanne talked about the I think it's especially living in New York City, which a huge Irish American population, a huge Italian American population, and our listeners probably coming from both backgrounds, understanding that it was a learned white supremacist narrative that was adopted by, you know, by your by your ancestors to seek power when originally they were meant to they were powerless in a lot of ways so and, and I they, think would, it, dom- they you know. would come
0: to dominate the police forces and let's let's yes. let's not ignore the fact that both the mayor of new york city and the governor of the state of new york are italian americans and yes. uh, and and they wield that power i mean uh, andrew Cuomo in particular can you know he he has he has demonstrated some strong Racist tendencies as the governor of the of the state of New York. It's also interesting in the um, her collaboration with uh, Raul Peck on uh, uh, "Exterminate All the Brutes." There was also a piece in there where I, I think they quoted uh, Theodore Roosevelt praising the violence of these the Scottish immigrants and how essential they were in um, in quelling any kind of resistance on the frontier they you know so they loved having these these brutish irishmen and these brutish scotchmen um in in the military on the frontier because they were so brutal to native people and 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 roosevelt praised that
1: i just i think of like the the i think of the anti-fascist history of italy and how badass it was in terms of like italian anarchists coming together and you're like y'all strung up mussolini like you had the ability to organize and really push back against the fascist government but then the The narrative here is totally (laughs) different and it's 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 such a different identity and it, for me, I, I, it's hard for me to make that, you know, that disc, like to disconnect. And so I wish that Italian Americans could be reminded that actually, you know, the, the legacy that you should be adopting is one of solidarity with indigenous peoples, not trying to constantly um, co-opt an American identity that looks to, that seeks to destroy it. So I, I, it's just such a disappointment, honestly, when we talk about how, especially Italian Americans, navigate New York City. Which is, you know, participating in that nation of immigrants narrative that Roxanne, you know, so wonderfully elaborated on, which was that this was that was a fantastical narrative. The nation of immigrants narrative was created by JFK to solidify his claim to presidency. Like it wasn't, which is part of the Irish American legacy as well. So there's more there's so much more to unpack in terms of like how. Uh, how detrimental these identity politics have been, but specifically when it comes to holding on to Columbus Day, you know, holding on to this, this, this history of terror as a means of pride and beauty and support and nationalism is just so against what uh, what what other people have done as fighting against anti-fascist, uh, fighting against well, and, and fascism? It's, and clearly,
0: there's a connection, you know, as you said, to, to settler colonialism and the rape culture, and uh, and again, uh, treating women as as their own extractive industry. Um, but let's let's shift. You know, you mentioned it earlier, and we kind of danced around a little bit. Uh, talk about what the what the um, uh, New York City School District has done here, and we'll talk about the pushback that came both from De Blasio and Cuomo on this thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Department of Education. Uh, when was this? Like, two, how many days ago was it at this point? Only a few. Um, yeah, just a few days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Department of Education of New York City has decided to no longer. Uh, quote unquote, celebrate Columbus Day, but rather to adopt Indigenous Peoples Day. And this came as a bit of a shock to a number of people, especially here in New York City, because as we said previously, there's been such pushback from uh, politicians as well as community members to embracing Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, and so for the Department of Education to do so was kind of, uh, it, it was just a surprise. And so now what, is, what does that mean and what does that look like? Will the city embrace it? Will you know, will people push back? Will the Department of Education change its mind? Like, there's a number of different ways that this can go, but it's actually kind of, uh, honestly, I'm going to say badass. It's pretty badass that they went beyond that and just decided to implement this, even if the city would not implement it.
0: Well, and, and the immediate pushback that came from De Blasio and and Cuomo was um, this some this travesty, you know, that was you know uh, that. It, this was to Italian Americans, like like this was somehow stripping Italian Americans from from uh, you know something from them, and and that's the way it was treated. I mean, De the, the Blasio's immediate pushback um, was that Italian Americans didn't deserve this, and and of course, Columbus Day isn't, regardless of what Cuomo or De Blasio or anybody else says, it is not an Italian American heritage holiday. It was supposed yeah. to be the celebration of a false narrative, a myth that was created around Columbus that that uh, while it may be true that Italian Americans used this to to elevate themselves in especially in New York society and others. It's it's simply not true, and and you know, we know that the atrocities that were committed by Columbus and his men, and the result of 500 years of genocide that would that would follow, we we know all the doctrine of Christian discovery, all of that. But there's so very people don't want to talk about his failing and 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 what he what a failed navigator and so explorer if that's what you even want to call him he was, but instead prop them up as you know as this great italian uh, italian you know savior that, that you know that that brought the new world to the rest of the world and and so when the pushback that came back immediately forced the school district to divide their um, yeah. uh, their their holiday so now they're calling it italian american heritage day slash indigenous slash. people's day uh, <laughs> you know so it, it you know it's 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 kind of pathetic but I, you know, look, i'm gonna I'm still going to praise what the Department of Education did, and I'm going to continue to condemn what guys like Bill de blasio and and Andrew Cuomo have done. One of the things that that I and I, I also want to thank Paul DiRienzo for having me on his uh, his news pro- program this morning. Um, because it, it's great to have had an opportunity to weigh in. One of the things that, that Cuomo has said over and over and and De Blasio said the same thing is that Columbus Day has come to represent. Um, Italian American heritage, and that's the same thing that the folks from the South waving their their Confederate flag say. They say, "Oh, it doesn't matter that it's Robert E. Lee. These this flag and th- these things become the symbol of southern Southern pride." There, guys like Cuomo and De Blasio have no problem condemning um, these these Confederate symbols and and those who want to praise that, but they're using the exact same argument that that some of these uh, you know not and it's not even just people in the south look i see way too many confederate flags flying in uh in western new york so it's it's kind of a bizarre you know phenomenon as far as i'm concerned
1: well i pulled this quote because as as john was saying so the department of education decided to do indigenous people's day there was huge pushback and so they've decided to do this italian heritage day slash indigenous people's day on the in, within this, this is within public schools, mind you. So I think that's important for folks to understand. But what I thought was crazy was um, Representative, oh, what was her name? Um, Malio Tak, yeah, Malio Takis, who's Republican and represents the Borough of Staten Island, made a quote that I'm pulling up because I think it's really, really, really just shows how out of touch the connection between Columbus Day is to the history. Which is, she said, quote. This is just another blatant attempt by City Hall to rewrite history while dishonoring so many of our citizens who are proud Italian Americans and cancel Christopher Columbus, who embodies the immigrant experience and discovery. End quote. (laughs) That quote really. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That quote really nailed home or really brought home what Roxanne was saying last week, which was that. Not only has history been rewritten, but also that the intention of this is to embody the immigrant experience. The immigrant experience, first of all, that is being told here is a fantastical one. It is not the real immigrant experience. And also, who are you defining as immigrants? Because Christopher Columbus was not an immigrant. He was a settler colonialist. And I really cannot stand how often those two have become synonymous. And similarly to as what I brought up last week, I'll bring up again this week, we, we embrace the immigrant narrative as a society, as long as they're not brown or black immigrants. As long as they're not coming from the global south, as long as they're not coming from countries of, of poverty, as long as they're a very specific type of people, then we embrace the narrative of an immigrant. But if they come here as undocumented indigenous people, from both, um, you know, from both Africa and the Global South, we we ignore it. Then, then there are a problem. Then there's something that needs to be changed. There needs something to be done to get them out of here. And that's why it's so important that we talk about how the immigration mythos is inherent to white supremacy. This isn't an acceptance of all immigrants. It's an acceptance of a very specific narrative of immigration, and they're not even immigrants. They're colonists.
0: Well, and and uh, Trump gave a name to the countries that. Uh that um, that he uh, rejected immigration from uh, um, uh, Mohawk we would call Ota um, uh, <laughs> um, Ota whole com- countries is what he called them uh, if you recall. Um, hey I also newsflash, Um Christopher Columbus was an Italian I mean he was from Genoa. <laughs> Um Italy wasn't a country in 1492. I mean, it wouldn't become a country for hundreds of years actually after that or at least a couple uh, at least a hundred years after that. He didn't sail for Italy, he sailed for Spain, he spoke Portuguese and Spanish. he um, he did not in any way represent what anybody could define today as Italian. Heritage. He also never stepped foot in what is now recognized as the United States or U.S. territories. He died believing that he had reached the easternmost islands of the uh, of the of Indonesia of the East Indies, as um, you know, as Europe described those uh, those islands. Um, and uh and again that's why many of us are still referred to as indians today because of a mistake by christopher columbus that has been immortalized through myth and legend and outright lies so i think it's important that people realize that for all of you italian americans um there are many other people that you could prop up as you know some sort of patron saint to your culture uh, that would be much more fitting than uh, than Christopher Columbus also,
1: you know, Senator Andrew Lanza who's a state senator for New York, is already drafting a uh, is drafting a bill currently to restore Ita- to restore Columbus Day. Um, so this has this was only announced on Tuesday. And as of twenty two hours ago, there's already state lawmakers who are looking to. Uh, to introduce a bill that would rescind this decision because there's so much, put, and it's incredible how much pushback there is. And I wish that more folks here in the city understood how detrimental the the mythos of a nation of immigrants is to indigenous people, specifically in the city, how it participates to our erasure, and also how it is connected to the legacy of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, trans, and two-spirit folks. It's the fact that people don't think that we exist; that the statistics aren't captured in terms of uh, by by those who you know who collect statistics about MMIWG2ST. So I do want folks to know that there is a task force that pushes back against that, run by the Urban Indigenous Collective. They are taking applications currently, so that people can get more involved and really. Really bring it back to what this is all about, which is that we cannot let our histories be erased by white supremacist narratives. It causes too much violence in our communities to ignore any longer.
0: Thanks, thank you so much, Regan. Great stuff, great show. Look forward to uh, to doing it again next week. Uh, thanks, folks. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins. We are Resistance Radio. Yahweh.